Welcome to the second episode of Drinking, Drugging, and Gaming, Are You in the Green? And today we'll be focusing on drugging. I'm Carissa McKay, and I'm joined again by one of my amazing partners in crime, Heather Garo miller We make up two-thirds of your health promotion team of specialists in Edmonton. In this episode, we'll be differentiating between legal and illegal drug use. And as we know, COVID-19 has had an impact on substance use. So we'll take a look at what that impact is. We'll look more specifically at the use of cannabis since it's been legalized, the risk factors, how it's used, and finish off with a discussion around harm reduction. Let's start by looking at why people use drugs in the first place. People use alcohol and cannabis for many different reasons. They might use it to fit in or they don't know any other way to have a social life or to numb the feelings that they don't want to feel or to connect with other people or maybe to address loneliness or they simply find it hard to be vulnerable or open without something to take the edge off and probably a whole host of other reasons known only to the person themselves. As we have mentioned, we don't know everyone's story. People can explain and excuse their choices and behaviors in a million ways to Sunday. What we are hoping is that people also start to think about alternatives and perhaps trying to get to the bottom of those reasons why and maybe take steps to find some different ways to overcome those fears or feelings. Many of you have likely seen and are familiar with the mental health continuum model. This is a good tool to use in increasing self-awareness around your well-being. Check in with yourself. Ask yourself, how am I doing? It takes a conscious effort to keep yourself mentally healthy and remain in the healthy zone. Take note of no longer being able to control use. Become preoccupied by the substance and it starts to control you and your behavior. For sure. And all of the substances that we're discussing fall into the category of psychoactive drugs, drugs that are used to alter our mood, perception, and consciousness. In other words, they're substances which make us feel, think, perceive, or behave differently than we would if we weren't using the substance. Here's a skill testing question for you listeners. Can you name the three main categories of psychoactive drugs? Since we don't have any prizes anyway, the answer to the skill testing question is the following three. Depressants. Depressants slow down brain function and lead to calmness or drowsiness. Depressants include alcohol, opioids, for example, heroin, fentanyl, oxycodone, morphine, etc. And then there's sedatives and medication for anxiety and sleep, lorazepam, diazepam. And then we have our hallucinogens. Hallucinogens produce their effects by acting on several areas of the brain and can result in major changes in mood, experiences, and thinking. For example, cannabis, LSD, magic mushrooms, or as they are known, psilocybin. And lastly, stimulants. Stimulants increase brain activity, especially in the areas that are part of the reward system. Because of this activity, stimulants lead to pleasurable and rewarding effects, as well as feeling alert. For example, cocaine, methamphetamines, nicotine, and caffeine. Some medications in this class, for example, methylphenidate, are prescribed for the treatment of attention deficit hyperactive disorder or ADHD. It's important to remember that psychoactive drugs include both legal and illegal drugs. So whether you are on a prescription 
or you are talking to your local cannabis shop sales associate, be aware of what it is that you're taking and know the side effects and contraindications. An interesting thing to note, of course, in the organization within which we work is that drug use was likely to be reported by CAF personnel ages 18 to 29, non-commissioned officers compared to officers, those with secondary education, and those with indications of psychological stress, PTSD, or depression. Of the CAF personnel who had ever used illicit drugs, the majority, which is around 84.1%, reported that they have used less since joining the CAF, while a small portion reported an increased use or that their use had stayed the The thing with stats, though, is you never really have the most current numbers, but it's a good way to note trends or anomalies. So we need to take them with a grain of salt for sure, but it's still something that can flag us to either identify where we might not have the whole picture or maybe where we need to start asking different questions. And I think that that's definitely true with all of the impacts, not just on drug use, but as a result of the pandemic generally. There's still fear and stigma around admitting to using or asking for help because maybe use has gotten out of control because, for example, the pandemic, which has pretty much ruined everything. Because we also know that alcohol use increased both at the beginning and then consistently after March of 2020. And it's clear that that trend was also there for drug use for, again, many of those same reasons. The things around COVID that led people to increase alcohol, cannabis, and other substance use are things that we can probably relate to just day to day, but they were really specific to the pandemic because of those feelings of stress and anxiety that arose as a result of that. You know, we didn't really have a sense of our daily or weekly routines. There was this blurring of them. We were feeling isolated and lonely because of the physical distancing that we needed to more definitively practice. And for a lot of people, substance use increased because of stockpiling. Yet people didn't just stockpile toilet paper. They apparently also stockpiled a whole lot of other things. So according to a Nanos poll, Canadians who report consuming more cannabis when they're staying home than before due to the pandemic, most often cited uh, it was because of a lack of a regular schedule, stress, and boredom as those main reasons for increased use. And those same exact reasons were cited for people who were consuming more alcohol. So when you think about all those things, though, you can see that there's a real relationship. It's definitely been exacerbated because of the pandemic, but people feel stress and anxiety generally. If you don't have a real set schedule or you spend a lot of time sweeping the hangar, maybe that blurring of or lack of a routine is always there for you as well. Social isolation doesn't only happen when we're physically distancing. A lot of people are socially isolated in the middle of city of over a million people. So there's lots of things that are definitely specific to COVID-19, but also things that just exist all the time for a lot of people. And age is another factor with Canadians between 18 to 34 years of age being more likely to report their consumption has increased compared to those 35 to 54 and 55 plus. And when we consider drug use, other things to think about are genetics, environmental influences, and personal risk factors. Genetic risk factors, including your family history of substance use problems, mental health problems like depression, anxiety, and PTSD, as well as having a genetic predisposition to drug dependency. Research has also shown that a link between mental health problems like depression and drug dependency. This is often referred to as concurrent disorders. There are certain characteristics known as personal risk factors that put a person at greater risk of becoming drug dependent. These characteristics determine how the person copes with stress and disappointment. If they have a low self-esteem, they will tend to blame themselves for everything that goes wrong and turn to substances to cope. 
If they are impulsive, they will act according to their feelings and not think through the consequences of their actions. If they place unrealistic demands on themselves or on others, they will quickly become disappointed. People who keep their emotions bottled up inside and who do not have a support network to help them cope are more at risk of substance use problems. To summarize, substance use problems often develop when all three risk factors are present, the genetic predisposition, the environmental stressors, and the lack of personal coping skills. So there's so many things that are happening. I think it's really important to note again, we want to point out that people don't typically say to themselves, wow, my life is going amazingly well right now. I should get stoned. It's precisely when they are feeling like things are falling apart or there are no outlets or there is a need to not feel what is happening, that drug or alcohol use becomes a coping strategy of choice, but it doesn't come potentially without some pretty significant costs. And one of the most telling stories related to that is that sadly, since March 2020, several provinces and territories have reported the highest number of opioid-related harms, including deaths since they began monitoring the crisis. This could be attributed to a growing, unpredictable and toxic street drug supply, a limited access to services available for people who use substances, and potentially feelings of isolation and anxiety that may be the result of COVID-19 and the public health measures implemented to reduce the impact of the pandemic in Canada. Consequently, more people are using drugs when they are alone, putting them at increased risk of overdose and death. And one of the things that we like to mention a lot, not because it's just a nice to know, but because it's a really critical consideration is that the opposite of addiction is connection. And so the more likely you are to be alone, the more likely you are to feel disconnected, the more likely you are to rely on substances to feel good or cope or whatever. So it's really important to think about what does your social connection situation look like for you right now? Is this something that's putting you at risk? So despite the kind of doomy gloom kind of thing that Heather just shared with us. The good news is that we know it's possible to use cannabis as an example recreationally without it becoming a problem. But there's a couple of caveats. You want to make sure that you have strategies and lifestyle practices in play that will decrease our risk for problems relating to unmanaged stress. If we have those large and relatively significant safety nets in place, it's less likely that we'll run into difficulties or tend to overuse or become dependent even when life throws us a few curveballs. Clearly, what we want to do is minimize our risk for increased use or overuse. And the easiest way, honestly, to do that, it sounds so dull, is to make sure that you're taking good care of yourself, making those healthy lifestyle choices like eating well, being physically active every day, because those are going to be things that help to alleviate our stress and anxiety. We want to try to make sure that we're making sleep a priority, that we get enough sleep, maintain that sleep schedule and practice good sleep hygiene. It's also really important that you've got stuff that you're interested in, stuff that you do, pursue interests, passions, hobbies that don't include substances. Find activities that help you get into the zone, that zone that we want to be in where we're feeling relaxed and like we're enjoying life and that things are good and that we are so into that we lose track of time, that we get into that psychological state called flow, all without substances. If recreational drug use is something that you're considering, then that's your choice. It's legal, but make sure that you've got the other side of that coin sorted out as well so that you've got that balance. 
McAuliffe is committed to an impairment-free workforce, therefore prohibiting the use of drugs can impair normal psychological and physical functioning. Members caught using drugs will automatically be considered for counseling and probation or release. If a member is found to be involved with illegal drugs, an administrative review will be conducted. So DAOD 5019-2 administrative review, it defines drug as it is found in the QR&O article 20.04. Secondly, a controlled substance as defined in the Controlled Drug and Substances Act or any other substance except for alcohol, the use of which can impair normal psychological and physical functioning and the use of which has been prohibited by the Chief of Defence Staff. The DAOD 5019-3 also identifies the following exceptions to the prohibition. No officer or non-commissioned member shall use any drug unless the member is authorized to use the drug by a qualified medical or dental practitioner for the purposes of medical treatment or dental care. The drug is contained in a non-prescription medication used by the member in accordance with the instructions accompanying the medication, or the member is required to use the drug in the course of military duties. While it is not exactly gripping reading, it is important to know this stuff because the excuse of, oh, I didn't know, isn't likely to hold much water. So knowing what the career risks and implications are is important as a potentially mitigating factor, even in the face of tremendous personal and professional stress, because it can be the difference between making a really bad choice or a pretty insignificant one. Exactly. So it's really important to recognize the difference between the drugs that we're talking about here. We're talking about both the drugs that are legal and illegal, but even of those legal ones of which cannabis is one. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail right away. But even with that, there are regulations in place that you need to be aware of. You can't just go around talking up all the time and think that that's going to be okay and that there's not going to be any drawbacks. If there are things that you have signed that say that you will not be having that in your system, you need to be adhering to those because it's going to affect your job, the safety of the people that you work with, and potentially your career. So you need to know all of those regulations before you start to think, well, it's legal, it's recreational, it's okay for me to do this. So really have that information squared away before you think that this is something that we're saying, yeah, go ahead and do it because that's not what we're saying. So getting to the nitty gritty of cannabis, there's a couple of things that those people who are already into the product will know, which is that it is made from the flowers or leaves of the cannabis plant. It can have a range of potencies that the dried cannabis potency range can be anywhere between around 3% to 15%, which is kind of what the average is today. So the more processed it's been, the higher the THC percentage typically gets. Things that everybody knows you don't want to smoke, which would be rope or hemp, that's going to contain very low amounts of THC because it's not grown for that purpose. It's grown for the purposes of making things out of hemp, rope, canvas, those kinds of things. So cannabis is referring particularly to the plant species cannabis sativa, and there's hundreds of chemical substances known as cannabinoids that are found and stored in the plant trichomes. The trichomes are the tiny clear hairs that stick out from the flowers and the leaves of the plant. Two of those most commonly known cannabinoids are your Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, or cannabidiol, CBD. 
cannabinoids affect neurotransmitter receptors in the brain and body. Those cannabinoids change how cells behave and communicate with each other, which again is the thing that's the most exciting in terms of research and medicinal use, because there's things that we know that people have said anecdotally that happens. And now we just need to find the proof that it works as medicinally as, as they're hoping with control. There are several ways that cannabis can be used. And for a more comprehensive description, you can check out the fact sheet on our CAF Connection page in the same place that you found this podcast. That reference is really quite funny to read. When we do that, it sounds more like we are cannabis primers than we are doing an awareness session. So just keep that in mind. This information is available on our page. So feel free to download it if you want that information. So just a quick note about the synthetic cannabis. The synthetic cannabis like K2 and Spice is not actually cannabis. They're dried plant matter that are sprayed or coated with man-made hallucinatory substances that can mimic THC, but it's not actually cannabis and those can be lethal. There are some synthetic cannabinoid products that are one of four major therapeutics that are available in Canada. And they are used for a number of the conditions that we're trying to treat with some alternatives to regular pharmaceuticals. But there's only four that are currently approved, safe and used in Canada. So anything that you see that's synthetic or if they're seeming sketchy, it probably means they are sketchy. So stay away. They could literally kill you. And all of this information, it just makes me even more apprehensive when I read this document that if I was ever to think about using this, I would want even more information before I would even dare consumption. But then again, it just goes to show that when you don't know or you think you know, but maybe you only have part of the information, or it seems like it might actually be worth the risk for the sense of relief or escape that it can provide, people will do things or make choices contrary to so-called common sense. Desperation makes people do things that they would otherwise never consider. And the proof is in the numbers. According to the Canadian Tobacco, Alcohol and Other Drugs Survey in 2017, 15% of Canadians aged 15 or older reported using cannabis in the last year. When the next survey comes out, it will be interesting to see the numbers and then try to piece together to what extent any measured changes were as a result of the long-term legalization and the effects of the pandemic. The Government of Canada is collecting a range of baseline data on cannabis use by Canadians to monitor and measure the impact of the legalization and regulation of cannabis. Standardized and comparable data collection will also help to inform those policies and programs, including public education and awareness activities like this. There are various surveys collecting information about cannabis use. There is the Canadian Tobacco, Alcohol and Other Drugs Survey that I just mentioned, the National Cannabis Survey and the Canadian Cannabis Survey. They provide updated information on frequency of cannabis use in the past three months, users that started using cannabis for the first time, sources of cannabis, beliefs about when it's safe to drive after using cannabis, driving a vehicle within two hours of having consumed cannabis, being a passenger in a vehicle driven by somebody who's consumed cannabis within two hours, and use of cannabis before or during work. 
That last one, that Canadian cannabis survey is a really interesting one because it's done annually to help to better understand the knowledge, attitudes, and behaviors of Canadians who consume cannabis for non-medical and medical purposes, as well as for Canadians who do not use cannabis. And some of the preliminary data that's coming out is showing that people are actually making not horrible judgments. Some people are actually starting to really recognize that there is an alteration in their state when they're using cannabis. And so they are not going to drive or people know that there's an alteration in mental state. So they're not getting into the car with a person who's used cannabis. So people are starting to be a little bit more aware and making choices and decisions that are going to keep them safer, which is good to see. But we know that we need to continue to do that data collection so that we can make sure that the numbers that we have are giving us the best possible picture so that we can modify regulations, modify any of those kinds of things, modify the education and awareness campaigns so that we can keep people as safe as possible. When it comes to surveys, though, obviously, there's going to be some variation in the response rate in terms of who wants to admit that they're using, who is going to more likely admit to that. And, you know, that's going to bring into question potentially some of the the data. So for the Canadian Cannabis Survey, the respondents are asked if they would like to complete the survey. And the ones that do typically are the ones that are more likely to complete the survey than those who didn't. So there's a little bit of a bias in terms of the, the content, but it's still good to see those results because it shows what happens when you use, because we kind of already know what happens when you don't, right? So we don't really measure, we don't need to measure that. But it's still important to, as they say, compare apples to apples to make sure that you're interpreting things correctly and not coming up with inaccurate or incorrect conclusions. Because as you know, 25.7% of statistics are made up on the spot. <laughs> Bad jokes aside, it's important from the perspective of both supervisors, family members, and even friends to recognize the signs of cannabis use. So possible signs of cannabis use are odor of cannabis, glassy or red eyes, unusual talkativeness, slow reaction, inattention, lethargy, unsteady gait, poor coordination, and anxiety. But what is even more important is that people don't jump to conclusions. Supervisors should be aware that these signs may be caused by another health condition, perhaps requiring immediate medical or other attention. So it's best if there is a conversation first to find out if there is in fact anything going on. And if over the course of the discussion, it turns out that cannabis use is in fact the issue, then that opens the door to a further conversation. Perhaps there will be a jacking up of the individual, but there should also be genuine concern and an eye towards understanding why this course of action is the one that the individual chose to take in the first place. Exactly. <laughs> Such excellent points. Because those other things that might end up having to be discussed are going to potentially be the behaviors related to withdrawal. So those symptoms are usually the opposite of the drug's effect. So for example, if you stop a stimulant, you're going to feel more sluggish. If you stop a depressant, you're going to feel more agitated. The interesting other thing about cannabis, because there's a lot of really interesting things. And as we study and learn more about it, we discover that there's so many things that we really didn't understand as well, because much of it was based on supposition because we couldn't study it. But one of those interesting things is that there's this mythology that it isn't addictive and it's not accurate. So to those who argue whether or not cannabis is addictive, the answer is actually a resounding yes. The people who use cannabis regularly can develop 
develop psychological or potentially mild physical dependence, but it's more associated with the situation around the use. That's the physical piece. The addiction piece is actually more connected to that psychological aspect. And those people with psychological dependence may become preoccupied with using cannabis as anybody with an addiction does do. They, they become preoccupied with the thing that they have done to feel better. And when that thing is no longer available, then you're going to be constantly thinking about that. And when they can't get it, they feel anxious. So again, if you're noticing things in your troops or your coworkers or your friends that seem out of the ordinary, have that conversation with them. Because if this is actually what's happening, you need to know that so that you can figure out what the most appropriate treatment is. For cannabis use, for people who have used it regularly over a long period of time, that physical dependence is going to feel like more irritability, anxiety, upset stomach, loss of appetite, sweating, and disturbed sleep. Interestingly, those are also the symptoms that you might experience when you use cannabis for the first time. So again, it's really important to know who you are, what's normal for you, and be aware of what those different things can be. So we want to ensure that you are really, really aware both of the risks and what you need to look for if you think someone might be getting in trouble as a result of using it a little bit too much. Because what we live to do in health promotion is stop problems before they start. We are going to talk about harm reduction, which essentially means taking steps that permit or allow the use or behavior, but in a way that will decrease the most significant risks of harm. CAMH, the Center for Addictions and Mental Health, revised these guidelines in 2018, and they are truly lower risk guidelines. Because depending on how you use cannabis, there are lower or higher health impacts. Because of the complexities of cannabis, its different potencies and the different methods of consumption, the guidelines do not give amounts. Rather, we ask you to make some considerations around your use or abstinence in order to best protect yourself. Of course, none is the best way to avoid problems, but if that is not your preference, then at least wait until after 25 to take it up and then be smart about how you choose to use. To avoid risks, abstinence is the best bet. Barring that as an option, then the following are important considerations. So the, the delayed start of use after 25, as was just mentioned, choosing lower risk products like oils or edibles versus forms that you have to burn. If you choose to smoke, then avoid deeply inhaling and holding it in your lungs. In general, as was already mentioned, avoid synthetic cannabinoids and cannabis and limit how often you use cannabis. Obviously, avoiding driving or operating machinery. And if you are at risk of mental health problems, avoid using at least without the guidance of a health professional or for women who may be or are pregnant, avoid completely avoid using cannabis. And as with alcohol, there are times when abstinence has to be the option. In the field, on deployment, when there are work restrictions, when it isn't safe to do so in terms of your need to make critical decisions, etc. The difficulty with not being able to use cannabis in the field is that if you have developed a dependency while in garrison and you don't recognize it, it is going to be a rude awakening when you wake up one morning in Wainwright and realize you don't have or can't have your regular cannabis 
joint vape or whatever it is that you use. This potential problem is why it is so important that you are very aware of your use. You are monitoring it to make sure that it is either purely recreational or in keeping with the policies that apply to your trade and to your unit or that any medically prescribed cannabis is fully disclosed so that the appropriate MELs can be applied to keep yourself and those you work with safe. It's a complicated issue, and as the past year and a half has shown us, we never know what might be around the corner or what significant challenges may lay ahead. The knowledge that you have in place and the strategies that you have tried and have been successful to help you to navigate the challenges are what will help you to keep you at your best physically, mentally, emotionally, and will help to ensure that drug use doesn't get in the way of your job, your career, or whatever other goals you may have. If you've got any questions, please don't hesitate to contact us at healthpromotionedmonton at forces.gc. We'd love to hear your feedback and any suggestions you have on other topics that you might be interested in. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening, and we hope that you will tune into the third episode in the series where we tackle the wild and unpredictable world of gaming. Until then, take care and stay healthy.